You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies and Recovery members. And now, Coming Up for Air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. Good afternoon, everyone. We are back this week on a brand new episode of Coming Up for Air. This is Annie Highwater, author of the book Unhooked and soon to be released second book, Unbroken. That will be out in 2018. I am with my co-host, Lori, who has a lot of plates in the air herself. We hope you all enjoy today's show. Welcome, Lori. Please introduce our topic. Hi, Annie. How are you? Good. Um, How are you? Happy to be back. And today's topic, what we're going to be talking about today is you don't know what you don't know. I think this is a great topic. I think this is actually a huge topic. And I think our listeners will understand why as we uh, kind of get a little bit more involved in it. But what what do we mean by you don't know what you don't know? We're talking about, we believe that awareness that the opiate epidemic is going on in this country awareness that it's even happening is incredibly low. I agree, right? Right, that people that are not in the midst of either chaos or people that are not in the recovery industry, in social work industry, in addiction hospitals, I think people hear about it on the television, maybe on the news, but they really don't see it as something that's affecting them. I don't, I think as well. And I think also it can be right beside them and maybe they're not aware for different reasons. And I know you have the bulk of the information for this, but the reason this topic came up in the first place, I did a a podcast with Layla Ali. And one of the things she said to me was she had just heard that there is an opiate epidemic. She had just heard it and that she's just now hearing it's caused by prescription painkillers or different experiences and that it can lead to heroin. So all of, and she asked if opiates were prescribed for sleep and she wasn't clear on if it was just for painkillers. And so there was a real lack of awareness there. And, you know, I don't know if the greater general public really has an eye on it. And then within the same week, we'd had a friend in from Texas there. His wife works in the field of medical and they're super smart. And one of the things he said to us over conversation over pizza was asking about my book and the subject. He had said, I'm just glad this problem hasn't hit Texas yet, which was astonishing to me because he's so out of the eye of it or unaware if it's around him, which we know it can be your next door neighbor. It can be your a family member, a friend, a coworker. He's so unaware of it. He didn't even realize the state of Texas. That's a, we don't have to get yeah. into the, all the details. That's a cartel entry point, And they've been getting hammered with the problem. There's lots right. of rehabs and treatment and need for that there. So those two scenarios opened my eyes that people don't seem to be aware. They don't seem to realize the urgency and maybe they're in the midst of it and they're just not seeing it or perhaps they're not interested. Right, right. I, I, I think that just to kind of piggyback on what you're saying, I think I'm guilty of this. I think I really didn't know until I found my son overdosed. I really was not uh, aware of what was going on in my community. And when I say my eyes were closed, I'm trying to think of, you know, what the words are. It's not that I wasn't feeling badly about, um, we were losing a lot of kids in the town to some form of of an opiate. So just for example, we lost a boy in the town, someone that really grew up with my kids and he smoked a fentanyl patch. Oh, wow. And he died. I didn't think anything of it. I thought, oh, yeah, I thought he overdosed, but I was not cluing into the fact that, oh my gosh, you know, opiates are in my community. Yeah. We lost another boy. He had a graduation party and he as well was drinking. He took some pain pills. Not that he, you know, not that they were prescribed him because they were not they were something that he had bought off of somebody 
and he mixed the two and he ended up also dying very young. Again, I still, I mean, all of the kids were going to the funeral and going to the wake and I was totally clueless as to what was going on around me. So I, I kind of get that. I kind of understand yep. why people, you know, why you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Um, I cared. I cared. And I thought really kind of some, some I, I think, really dumb thoughts. I thought that, well, you know what? I had talked to my son and I had talked to my children about heroin and those drugs and cocaine. And, you know, and they had promised me, oh, no, I'll never touch those, mom. I'll never, ever touch those. And I believed them. And, yeah. and, and you do. But how can a kid of 15 or 16 years old or even younger, how could they possibly make a promise like that? Right. I, I remember when my kids were growing up, these contracts were huge. Right. Where mm-hmm. you, you sign a contract that if if your kid goes out to a party and they drink, that they won't get in the car and they won't drive or they won't ever get in a car with someone else who's been drinking, that they'll give you a phone call and you can come and pick them up. Up and you won't, you know, you won't do or say anything. But now looking back on those contracts, I, I think they were kind of naive of us to think that the majority or all kids were going to follow these contracts simply because they signed it. I think that when they're that age and the frontal lobe is not working correctly, you know, yeah. their, their logical thinking is not like an adult's, that they are going to make uh, silly, dumb mistakes. And not, not just silly, but what they see is silly, but ends up being something really serious. Well, here's my question. Can you wait? Well, I was, I was aware because, um, you know, we were a church going family, but my mother had a struggle with prescription pills and then my son's injury led to a dependency. So I was aware that it was possible, but here's my question. Can you become aware without a wake up call? I think that's a great question. And I think it's a a really difficult answer or solution to that because I am not sure. I'm really not sure. I am on a, I'm in this group on Facebook of mothers and parents from a town and they, they talk about the opiate epidemic every once in a while. I hear people, I hear parents, moms in particular, saying things that I know that I thought and I said when I was, right, when I had a child who was a teenager going through the same stuff, they'll, they'll say things like, well, you know, it's just a stage, or they'll say things like, I love him so much that I'm teaching him. Right. Or I talked to my son and my son said he'll he promised me he'll never touch those things. And I and I always I always ask them, I try and get them to think outside the box. Sometimes I think they think I'm irritating them, but I'm not or I'm not intending to irritate them. I'm intending to try and get them to think, well, okay, do you think that I didn't talk to my son about that? Do you think that I didn't? love my son as much as you love yours, right? Do you think that when my kids were young, I didn't hold these conversations because I did? So my my thing is, is what I'm trying to do is I'm always trying to get them to dig a little bit deeper. Don't just leave it there. Don't just leave it at, he promised me so he won't. It's almost like now we have to go a little bit deeper and we have to look for warning signs we have to not trust that they're going to make the right decisions because teenagers make mistakes, right? It's not that they're doing it to disobey you or to be frustrating. They, they make mistakes. This is the age when they, when they make mistakes. Well, yeah. And I think one thing is, you know, I had, I had cautioned my son, there's consequences if you get engaged with substances, especially illegal, especially underage, especially with vehicles, things like that. But I didn't, and I even knew some, to some extent, abusing prescription pills because I'd witnessed it in my family. And now, you know, there's more knowledge of that now. But one thing I think is a big thing, and I'll give an example. Somebody told me the other day that they had relapsed on taking painkillers more often than they were prescribed. And it's a distant family member, but they're in and out and if you didn't know this, you wouldn't know it was affecting their life. But they tend to come to me and tell me about it because I'm kind of aware, aware past the surface of the struggle. And I said, what you have to understand is it's not about being embarrassed 
It's not about being ashamed. It's not about whether you're doing right or wrong. It's not about good or bad. It's about you having a draw toward this. That's the deeper issue. So that's the thing about teaching kids is you don't know that you're going to become addicted until you try a substance. So it's really teach them the good and bad and right from wrong, whether it's partying, partying and taking pills that somebody sells you or taking pills that are prescribed to you. But it's about that. It's not good or bad. It's do you have the draw toward it? And you may possibly have the draw toward it. Right. You can't see around the corner from the day you took you did the what I think is the gateway drug is alcohol. I don't think it's marijuana. Alcohol typically is the gateway drug. You don't see around the corner from your first drink or your first trying marijuana or your first pill that around the corner five years from now, it could, you could have a raging addiction and be homeless and on heroin. You don't know. So right. it's really not about just what's right or wrong, good or bad. It's really knowing that, do you have a draw toward it and knowing that you might. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that, that you say this stuff because there's a, there's a couple of things too that uh, when we say you don't know what you don't know, looking back on things, I did not know what an opiate was. I yeah. did not know that we're talking about synthetic heroin. We're, we're, I yeah. didn't know that, right? We had friends. I, I have friends that I witnessed. I had a friend who actually had her own prescription for Percocet. And then her son got injured in a sport and he came home. It wasn't bad enough to go to the doctors, but it was bad enough that it was aching him. And she gave him one of her Percocet for the injury, not knowing, oh my gosh, you're giving your son something that's highly addictive. She wasn't told that. She didn't know that. I didn't know that, right? I might've said something to her if I knew that. People don't know. That happens all the time, all the time in normal families and good families and doctor. I had somebody tell me a year ago that a doctor lives across the street from her and she sprained her ankle and he offered her a prescription that he had on hand. A doctor did. It happens constantly. You are messing with somebody's brain. Right. And, you know, I'm not a big, I'm not a big proponent of of gateway drug and and I'm not saying uh, uh, the reason why I don't like using that term is because I think that I think that people can argue back a lot of the time they'll say things like well I know of you know a lot of people that drank or smoked pot and then they never used heroin right my argument about it is not that it agrees with you but it's that people call marijuana the gateway drug more than alcohol and alcohol is a lot more dangerous well, I agree with you on that. And, and it's yeah. often used first before right. anyone ever gets to marijuana. Right. And, I, and I'm not, what I mean by, I don't like using the term gateway, I guess is, is what I'm saying, because people will then use it against you. Yeah, and they they'll do. say, oh, no, no, it's just a stage. You know, there's no such thing as a gateway drug. But I will tell you this, alcohol and pot, both of them, and I agree with you. I think alcohol is extremely dangerous. I think it's one of the most dangerous drugs. I think it's it comes pretty darn close to heroin, if not even, it, it may even be worse in some areas. And how many people do you know used marijuana before alcohol? They Most people try right. alcohol first. First, yes. Right. Yes, I do agree with you. But I will tell you this. Both alcohol, if you listen to uh, Dr. Ruth Poti, she's, she is on YouTube and people should look her up and watch some of her videos, but she explains how both alcohol and pot interfere with the pruning of the brain or the developing right. brain yep. from the ages of like five to like, say, 21, 22, all the way up to like 25, right? And both alcohol and pot interfere with that process, right? So it does interfere with the developing brain and that can make you more likely to be addicted later on in life because it's changing stuff in there. It's changing stuff in your, in your mind. I think everybody should go and watch those YouTube videos. And I agree. Look them up. You, you can probably, I think you can find them on like the SAMHSA website and YouTube or Ted talks, I believe has, yeah. might have her, I think. Yeah. Oh, the, the physiology. You don't know what you don't know. And those things are good preparatory right. information. Right. So understanding when you, when I, 
I hear parents all the time go, oh, they're just drinking or, oh, they're just smoking pot. Well, you know what? One of the best things you can do is try and get your teenager to hold off drinking or smoking until they are much late, much older because the statistics show, I forget what, I don't want to give any numbers because I don't want the, know what the numbers are. I don't remember them, but you're much more highly likely to become an alcoholic if you start drinking at a at like 14 or 15 years old versus if you start drinking at like 21 something like that so I'm sorry but I agree I do agree with you but I can also tell you that I didn't know what I didn't know I didn't know this stuff I hadn't thought about it and I think and I also think kind of getting back to your original question of how do you reach people Without a wake-up call. Without a wake-up call. I am not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because why would they care? Because why would they care? I mean, I have people in my life that don't typically have it close to them in their family, but because they've watched our situation and seen, you know, our success at this point and they cared about us through it, now we're more aware, now have a heart for it, now we're more involved. Right. But unless, you know, because that kind of bleeds out, it's a trickle, it's a ripple Because now it's touching your life. Now it's. Now it's in your face. Yeah. Right. But I have to tell you, even I mean, here I was, I had friends who lost a son and I, it was in my face and I was still kind of oblivious to it. I really didn't believe it was going to touch me. And boy, did it touch me in a big way. Right. Right. I mean, it really changed my, it changed my life. But also, I'll also say this, although it might not have made a, a dramatic change in me. Do I think that people shouldn't have tried to reach me? I think that you should. I think that it probably would have given me, I I probably would have walked away from it, not believing or, or not changing my mind, but it might've planted a little bit of a seed in, in me that I would have recognized maybe signs sooner, or I would have, I would have maybe done something sooner. Or it would have all clicked later. Like I've had somebody tell me when you go to a support group or whatever your choice is of recovery group, it's like walking into a movie that's halfway through, but then it swings back around and makes sense. And you, you know, things start to kind of click. And I'd had a girl tell me her mom was a therapist and I loved this. She got caught drinking when she was 16 and not her mother didn't think it would make her mom's a recovery therapist. She didn't just feel like it would make an impact to just ground her and be punitive. So she took her to five AA meetings. And I love that because if I were faced with catching a child, you know, smoking pot now or misusing pills or drinking with friends, it may, I I feel in my opinion, you know, and everyone's different. I feel like that would make a better impact when you go and you see people talking about having to rise from the wreckage because kids don't see around corners that somebody who started out where they are ended up losing a family over alcohol or getting in a DUI and, you know, getting hurt, losing their license, becoming a heroin addict. So she said those five recovery meetings, she said they were nothing but a bother and a bore. And I thought nothing of it. I didn't think take the people serious. But six years later, when she found herself in over her head in college, she knew the path out and she found an AA meeting herself and has been in recovery since. And so in my opinion, that early preparation by that mom, that conversation, even, you know, just like you said, even if it's not received or taken serious or agreed with, it doesn't matter because telling the truth comes full circle and makes sense later when it starts to click. Right. And there are, there, I'll tell you, there are a lot of things I wish I had done differently. Like I wish that I had talked to my son and told him things like, yeah, you might try these drugs. You might try alcohol or you might try pot remember that in the beginning they're going to make you feel good right that you're going to you're going to feel like oh these are these don't do anything all they do is they make me feel good but they make you feel good in the moment it's later on it's when it's when things start to fall apart and you can't get as high as you did previously and you know that it that it kind of creeps up on you it's not overnight and the reason why I say this is because I hear a lot of people say that my parents said, oh, don't smoke pot. It'll ruin your life. And then they go out, they smoke pot, and they're like, I don't know what they're talking about. This was a blast. Yeah, it's fun. This is fun. Or other things, like I wish I 
I was more willing to kind of get beyond the privacy thing. Like I was always worried about, am I overstepping my bounds? You know, how much privacy should I allow my child? Maybe I should have been saying things like, you know what? I'm going to periodically drug test all of you guys because it's my job as a parent to make sure that you're not doing something that's incredibly dangerous. And if you are doing something that's incredibly dangerous, it's my job as a parent to make sure that I get you to treatment. Yeah. And that's the path. And I think I I would have been less punitive. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been less punishing. I remember I house sat for a family that went to watch the Olympics when my son was probably eight years old and they had a teenage son who was 16. And I remember he was kind of wild, but I was able to have these conversations with him. He, and I, and I caught from him that he really wasn't wild and didn't want to be wild. He just was kind of misunderstood. And I had these deep conversations with him. He understood literature and poetry and all of these different things. His family was very religious and he was constantly in trouble. But I remember him telling me, I kind of walked back with him through some things, didn't even realize I was kind of unwrapping him and he was unpacking hacking, what had led to, he had started to become really dark looking on purpose and scary on purpose. And he told me, you know, when I was 14 years old, I, I had smoked pot with my friends and I felt so guilty because my parents had taught me different and that it was wrong and it was bad. So I tearfully told my dad I needed to talk to him so I could confess him and tell him because I was so afraid that I would become an addict or whatever. I knew it was wrong. And he said, and my dad had me pull my pants down and spanked me with a belt and I was 14. And I was so crushed for him. I did not expect it to go in that direction. And I said, and is that the point that he lost you? And he said, forever. I'll never be the same person. And I'm not saying don't punish your kids or whatever. I'm not getting involved with that. And these were, I believe, well-meaning people. They were smart people, but it destroyed this kid's self-esteem. It destroyed his ability to feel safe and come to them. What would a difference would that have made if his dad would have embraced him and been like for him and not against him and possibly taken him to a meeting or began to educate him so that he felt teamed up with instead of the ultimate humiliation. Right. Right. No, and I didn't go, I didn't do anything like that, but I'm saying I believe the harsh punishment has more to do with parents feeling afraid and you're embarrassing me and you're going down a path and making me look like a bad parent and I'm going to control this in a harsh manner. And that doesn't work. While I'm thinking about it, let's thank Allies in Recovery for sponsoring Coming Up for Air. Members who join Allies in Recovery can communicate directly with us. When you join, you can ask us questions we'll address on our podcasts. You can also request topics you would like us to cover. Join today at alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the show parents do that because they're afraid of what other people think. Oh, yes, I agree. They feel like, oh, my God, I've got to get this kid under control because everybody is going to think I'm not doing my job, right? I'm not doing my job as a parent. And and I agree with you. I think... I think it, me, it has the opposite effect. It, it, it did does. not reach that kid. It didn't stop him. It didn't make him better. It didn't make him right. less embarrassing. I still check back every now and then and look him up and he hasn't kind of come full circle yet. He still right. seems to be really defiant against society. Even. Right, right. But I also think that leads into uh, stigma or not only stigma, but lack of education, lack of education yeah. that the father didn't really understand what it was he was dealing with. Yeah. Right. Or Maybe if he it. knew that substance use was a disease and he understood it as a disease, you know, he could, he could talk to his son or whatever and get him the help that he actually needs versus, you know, something like the, the son is trying to do this to him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was, and not something just to punish. And the kid had, he was interesting. He would have these Muppets steering wheel covers and things like that. And I didn't ever condone anything he did because I had really conservative views about all of that, but he wasn't my kid. And I really saw what he was kind of dealing with and that you weren't going to open this kid up. So I just loved him and encouraged him and let him know I enjoyed his company. And then my last day there, he left all of his Muppet characters that he kept in his car in my car as a gift. So I just really thought, Oh, I just really like he felt safe with me and I so appreciated that and I didn't feel like I could necessarily approach his parents because they were very closed 
about right. their way of doing things. Right. And I think when you're like that, how can you open up? You're not aware. You don't know. Right. And a lot of people are very closed. I mean, you, not for nothing, but I think I would have been very offended if someone came in and said, oh, you, you should be doing it this way. Or, you know, have you thought about this? I would have been like, go, go away, go away. Yeah. Wait until I ask you for help. You know, that kind of thing. So I'm not surprised, but it sounds like you did the right thing. It sounds like you were understanding of the parents that they were they were probably trying to figure it all out. Right. But you're also being as supportive as you can for the boy. Right. And we're all just at different places. They handled it from probably how they'd been handled and right. how they'd and been I'm taught. And I'm sure they also handled it out of love. Right. It, it, or they it, believed it was love. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. So there is a, a lack of awareness shows up in a lot of ways. And it shows up in those who become addicted because they're not expecting it and they don't necessarily know what's going to lead to it. And it shows up in those who are affected by it. The family members need a sense of understanding. And then it shows up in those who aren't aware of how dire the situation that we are in as a nation in the right. worst epidemic imaginable. This is right unimaginable that we're in this mess and it's getting worse. The lack of awareness, awareness is so low. And for me, that feels like something to panic over. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think we are in panic mode. I think everybody involved in the epidemic, and I don't mean people that are suffering with SUD or substance use disorder. I think everybody surrounding it, Everybody that's involved is in panic mode, and I agree with you. I think we live in a, in a country where, you know, as much as it's on the news and people are talking about it, people are still shut down to it. They're not really paying attention. I hear people all the time ask questions about it. And, and I'm like, wow, you know, I guess you and I are, are thinking about it 24 hours a day. I mean, what we do, what we write about, what we blog, write the podcast, what we research, we think about it all the time. And we think everybody else knows what's going on. Well, yes. And I think you become progressively aware. Like I'm always constantly reading new things, trending about it or what's going on. So I'm progressively aware of it. I even told somebody the other day, some of the responses I've seen from people in different situations, it jolts me because I don't have people in my life close to me that usually I'm in conversation with that don't have an understanding of it or aren't at least kind about it. So when you come up against the lack of awareness or especially swinging over to the unkindness, now at this point and I did deal with that but I'm just blessed that I don't deal with that anymore I guess we we are both so involved right. in the process right yeah and now I something happened to me recently as well I had gone down to my local pharmacy and and this man somehow the the topic got brought up and I didn't know this man in line but he started arguing it's a choice and I was like no I I do this it's not it's a disease this is yeah. what I do 24 hours but it's funny how I handled it this time. Like I was solid in what I, what I was saying. I was, I did not feel intimidated, not one little bit. I didn't clam up. You know, I was like, no, no, you're wrong. It's a disease. I don't think I brought him over to the, to my side of it, but that, you know, but whatever, maybe, maybe he'll go off and he'll do some research and he'll do some thinking about it. But it'll be like, he came into that movie halfway and eventually it repeats and comes back around and then it makes sense. Right. Right. At least he's hearing, you know, at least he's hearing. At least he's talking about it. Other people aren't even talking about it, you know. And your mind can change. My mind changed as well. Even though I was aware, I saw it still as more of a moral failing and punishable than I have the past five years. So the mind is progressive. You just have to have a willingness and an openness. And I think raising the conversation on our part, on the part of others, is how to make that happen. I agree. So if you're not aware, what are some things to look for, some signs or situations to maybe open your eyes that it's near you or around you? Okay, I'm going to let you start off with these signs that you have laid out because the, the only reason why I'm, gonna, I, I'm asking you to kind of project us there is that when I was going through everything I was going through, my son also struggled with bipolar and right. some mental illness. And a lot of the same, they experience a lot of the same symptoms. So I think it was really gray. I think I would have still struggled to narrow it down, even if I knew what they were. Right. And sometimes it's a dual diagnosis that drug use creates mental problems. Yes. 
Right. I mean, ours was not that case. Right. I mean, that definitely happens in, in ours was not that so case. So you were seeing that it was something else, which is a part right. of that lack of awareness, because even if you don't have a child with that, you, your mind wants to make up other reasons you're seeing these signs. Right. And, and I, the, a part of the issue was, is I had been seeing these signs from the For time. so long. Right. You know, so it was yeah. like, I, you know, how do I separate what, what's addiction? What's the mental illness. What's this, what's this that I'm used to? Right. Right. That right. makes sense. Well, we don't have to go too, on too long, but I just have a list of a few things that I think are good to know and have your eyes open for. And there are the obvious physical signs if somebody's abusing substances and that would be they're tired all the time. Um, they look different. Their eyes look different. They're maybe red or their pupils are tiny. Um, their nose is itchy and watery. They have stomach and abdominal pain and problems, nausea, things like that. Then on to the obvious signs of things like knee Needle marks if they're an IV user, you know, things like that. Do you have any extra of those? Oh, well, signs? I can tell you the physical signs. Weight loss. Right. It's well, rampant. Yeah, that is true. But I can tell you the physical signs. See, this was another, this was another thing. These are all the same signs that I saw with mental right. illness when he was younger before uh, substance use disorder even became a part of it. But I would, I would say definitely towards the end, he lost a lot of weight, lost a ton of weight. And that was a sign. And some of these signs are, they're, they're so gradually happening that it's not in just one moment. They're right. suddenly they're losing weight. Suddenly they're eyes look different. Right. It's so gradual and it happens right in front of you that you're not aware until right. everything explodes. Right. And I right. think that's, that's a part of what happened with us. Well, and they bled into one another, right? I've got this yeah. substance use problem going on and I've got some mental illness problems going on. So they're kind of bleeding into one another and how do I separate? But right. yes, I think those are, those are good signs. For me, those things, those signs showed up quick. So right. I quickly saw the personality and physical and stomach problems and constant sinus infections and constant colds and things like that were suddenly just a burden. So when those things became, began to increase, those were definite signs. And then there are emotional signs, they, which I'm sure you experienced many beforehand, but their emotions are kind of up and down and all over the place. Well, you know what? I love this one because the other thing about emotional signs is I saw a lot of emotional problems with his mental health. Right. Right. But then when he was using, he became the nicest person to have around. So I had kind of a switch. Because he felt better? I think so. Yeah, I think so. He was, he was more loving. He was more, you know, he was kind. He wasn't so up and down. He was kind of more level. Right. Um, so how was I supposed to know that? Yeah. Fine. Right. How would I, how was I, you had to have a wake up call. Right. Right. With our emotional signs and what I've seen from other families is, um, one of the things, and I just wanted to drop this in, it's kind of a manipulative sign is that you will experience gaslighting. And I'd had a mother ask me the other day if I'd ever heard of it. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Yes. I'm very familiar with the gaslighting and and validating. And that's where somebody will deny something that's happening right in front of you. And you'll start thinking you're crazy. So she would ask him about his weight loss, ask him about finding, you know, broken straws in the home that he was using to snort things, asking about his behaviors. And he would deny it or tell her she was crazy or she was sensitive or she was just bothering him and in his business. So that's kind of an emotional sign to where those things start presenting and you find yourself in a fight for your life, defending yourself and what you're suspicious of. Mm -hmm. And then moving on through that, one of the big things is that when somebody has an an addiction or a problem with gambling or substances or something that's going out of control, they need money. So money starts missing and it doesn't just start. Money comes up missing. Things around the house come up missing. And these kids know how to go to pawn shops and sell video games and, Uh and movies. And they know how to do it over time to where you don't notice. And then they'll deny it. So that's gaslighting again. And then another big thing is that they can be working full time but why don't they ever have money? Right. You know, you, you, you've been working full time overtime, but you don't have money for gas. You don't have a job. Or this yeah. time they just shorted you on your paycheck or again, your boss paid you late, but it's over and over. And it's like, you're always getting paid late. You're, right. you're always getting shortchanged on your paycheck or right. on, on the amount. And you know, you're working full time, but you don't have, you're asking me for 20 bucks to get a pizza. 
right? I can't tell you how many people I've talked to whose sons or, or daughters have stolen jewelry, have stolen tools out of the garage. I have one woman that I know, her son came in and wiped her whole house out. She literally came home from work yep. and her son had gone in there, broken the door and taken the furniture and the electronics uh, uh. out of their house. Yeah. And sold everything. I, I can't imagine. But yes. Yeah. Exactly. Money missing. Money missing. I mean, and they can be working full time. And then another thing is that they might say, you know, I need money to get a tire fixed or to buy an outfit for a yeah. job interview. And four days later, the tire is still flat or they don't have the new outfit for a job interview or the right. job interview doesn't, you know, things like that. It's just over and over. Money is drained and things are missing and money doesn't add up and there's never enough money and you can be giving them money and you're like, things are being sold. I'm giving you money. I heard you borrowed money from your grandmother right. and you're working and all of these sources are just going down a funnel and money is missing and there's no accountability for it. That is a huge, huge sign to pay attention to. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's maddening and it's scary and it's frustrating. And so when those things start happening, reach out for support online, find a group, something, because it's so big, you don't want to handle it alone and you don't want to go to this person and have them explain it, which is your human nature, because they're going to spin you all over the place yeah, and oh, not admit just, it. If, yeah, right. Right. It's just manipulation. And it just increases the madness that you're already dealing with and the heartache you're suspecting. Right. And let's just take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by CCSHM, the Community Coalition for a Safe and Healthy Morris, whose mission is to prevent and reduce substance use throughout the lifespan through collaboration, education, and community-wide change. CCSHM partners with CARES, the Center for Addiction Recovery, Education, and Success, to bring prevention and recovery services to communities throughout Morris County and New Jersey. CCSHM and CARES are projects of Morris County Prevention is Key. Go to safehealthymorris.org or caresnj.org or call 973-625-1998. And then there's um, changes of social behaviors and who they associate with and where they go. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, we all see that. Their crowd just either dwindles or becomes completely different and it gets kind of scarier and scarier. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in places where they'll go and things like that. Yep. Can you think of some other signs? Um, You know what? I'm going to say one thing that I hear a lot about is um, car accidents and just constant, like, that's a good point. I, I know it sounds crazy, but I hear it all the time from parents. He was in three car accidents. Yeah. Or, you know, and I'm like, but I don't think he was using. Well, why don't you think he was using? You know, I don't understand how. Because he you think it's everything accidents. but. Right. Exactly. And you, you don't want it to be that. Right. You right. don't want it to be substance use. And you start to believe them. They start to make you feel and, and think you're crazy. Gaslighting. Right. And invalidating. And that's, right. you know, that's a part of it, too, is that you begin to have bottomless arguments. And, you know, these are unique to certain people, but all, all of our details vary, but our dynamics don't when you're right. dealing with this. So they may be tweaked here and there. And, you know, I've had a lot of people say, well, my son was never hateful or my daughter never sent right. me these text messages or my, my sister never stole from us. And that may change. It doesn't mean it's not happening. These are just things that are typical par for the course. Right. And there's and bottomless, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Bottomless arguments, I, I believe that happens with a lot of people, probably across the board. But I think that the that kind of goes into the emotional signs and the gaslighting yep. and all of that. It all kind of gets mixed together. Right. And, and I think one of the best things you can do with the arguing is literally just stop just right. I le- had to learn a lot of that through the craft method and allies in recovery because yeah, I would lock horns. Right. Yep. Even if you don't do anything, just stop the argument. Just and I'm don't return do the it. texts and yeah. don't, you know, don't continue the phone call and don't wonder why they're saying you're a terrible mom or yep. father or this is your fault or they wouldn't be doing this or that. If yep. hadn't. Those are the things that it's just don't take the hooks. And that's a learning process. You don't get better or good at that overnight. I don't know if you have any other obvious signs that you maybe are in the orbit 
of somebody that's entering a dependency or in a full-blown addiction or not, but there are signs also for those who are affected. Maybe you work next to a mom or you're related to someone that doesn't want to come out and tell you. And I think those are important things to not only become aware of, but to become open-hearted and compassionate about. Right. I agree. I agree. And, And I think that can be incredibly difficult to approach somebody that's in your circle, that's a part of your life, and how to let them know that you're suspicious of someone in their life, you know, or maybe their child or something like that. I think you have to be really, really careful. Because they're on guard anyway. Yeah. At least I was. And, you know, sometimes you're just, you are fighting the monster that is in your heart and the phone ringing and all of the, all the fears you have and everything going on. And sometimes somebody would come to me and say, are you okay? And, or you seem really distracted. Is everything all right? And I'm just holding that damn in. I got my finger in the hole of a great hurricane coming. Right. I think be compassionate and be wise because you don't want to approach somebody and try to draw out what they're dealing with because it's so heavy and hard. Right. And, and also I found that if I find some way to share what I've been going through, just not, you know, I don't want to make it obvious, but just to find some way to bring up the topic of what I'm dealing with and let that out a little bit. And then if they want to open up to me, then I'll try and, uh, oh, geez, sounds like a similar situation and kind of open the door up that way. But maybe they don't, maybe they don't take the bait, right? And and they want me to back off and I do. I just right. I give them the respect and but I'm still compassionate. I try to be as compassionate as I possibly can. And at this point you and I are both somewhat in the public eye so most people know that we're a safe place to talk about it too. Yeah. But like when you're in the position and you know, I don't know if what your work setting was. I know you ended up home after a while. I was in a corporate setting where I would have to attend meetings or host clients all day and with a staff with me while this burden was raging at its worst. I'm sure people saw that my eyes were always frantic. I was tearful, but quiet. I was on edge. You know, I spent a lot of time with my office door shut. And so it was obvious something was wrong. I don't know if at the beginning they thought maybe I was going through a divorce or some other kind of a stressful personal situation, but distress was present and obvious. Mm -hmm. Well, I just found ways to isolate myself and I did. I mean, I took six months and just isolated myself and... And I'm okay with that. That that's what I needed. That's how I dealt with it. And I uh, I knew I wasn't going to stay there, right? I I knew that eventually I was going to do something about it. But I kind of needed that. I I didn't want people. I didn't want pity. Right. Right. I didn't want it. It's not that I I I wanted to make sure that I wasn't getting pity from people. It was like okay, leave me alone, and let me just figure this out. But I also know that I'm a very happy person generally. Right. Like I must have really high levels of dopamine because I knew that I was going to be fine. Yeah. Right. Uh, But I, and I just needed to allow myself to do this for a little while and kind of isolate myself. And I did. And that's why I say it's like, it's, it's like a tiptoe. It's like a little bit of a balancing act. If you see someone else going through it, because you don't want to push yourself on them, right? You want to allow them to figure out what's going to work for them, but you also want to be empathetic, compassionate, and sensitive to their situation. Right. And that, I, I think that's with somebody who's at art, arm's length, but even bringing it in a little bit closer. And, you know, both of us went through this when it wasn't as prevalently discussed mm-hmm. and openly discussed. But I had some friends in my life that were aware that it was going on. And I would say with that awareness, I feel like maybe an extra layer of compassion would have helped a lot to where don't approach somebody with petty arguments that don't matter when you know that they've got some kind of a nightmare going on with their kid. You wouldn't go to somebody whose kid was, you know, terminally ill or in jail or, you know, whatever high level of stress you might be going on and nitpick at things and snap at them and bother them with petty gossip and stuff in the midst of the worst crisis of their life. And I had a five-year span of that where I had a couple of my closest friends were loved petty conflict. And it just about put me on the ceiling every time I would get snapped at or get a late night phone call about something that they were mad at someone else about that was nowhere near me wondering where my son was sleeping. Nowhere near me wondering if he was going to go to prison jail or end up in a casket. So awareness when somebody is in your orbit and you know that they have, whether you think the kid's doing well or the person, the family caused it, no matter what your opinions are, if you're close to somebody who's going through it, watch your mouth. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, really. It's true. 
and it's true because I, I had similar things happen to me too that I, it was just, I can't believe the insensitivity. Yes. And now is not the time because I'm going to lash out at you as if I'm lashing out at the situation because it's so big and on me. So if you come at me and like poke me, it's all going to just kind of erupt. Right. So and really I, I, save it until things are in a better place. Right. And I couldn't handle it. I, could, right. I couldn't handle anything. It's like you, you can't handle much, anything. I can't handle, uh, really, seriously, I was like hanging from a, from a hair, right? And it's like, if all you need is one more thing and I'm, the hair is going to break and I'm going to fall. And that's really where I was, which is probably why I isolated myself because yeah. it's like, nope, I'm not, I can't do it. I cannot deal with it. I couldn't deal yeah. with it. And I, ne- I didn't deal with it reasonably at any time that it happened. And, you know, I remember one point I was at my breaking point and I'd had a friend get really belligerent and rude with me about something just unimportant and push the topic and pushed it. And I, I didn't want to put my energy or my mind on it because, you know, you got this kid going on and I remember snapping and, and get, and we had a baseball bat with my son's name carved into the Louisville slugger. And I remember grabbing it and having this thought for a moment, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to go smash her face until my son's <laughs> name appears on her forehead. And then she's in as much pain and, you know, a mess as much as I am because yeah. you're just, you are a dumpster fire. You are, I don't know how else to describe it. You, internally, you cannot handle. Please yeah, be aware of that. Yeah. Even if you suspect that somebody's got an addiction in their family, back off and be sensitive and leave them alone. If it, if it isn't life and death, leave them alone. Right. I agree. Yeah, I get really passionate about that because those were some things that I had a hard time. You know, I'm, I, I tend to be kind of hot-headed anyway, and those were some things that happened. And I still think, geez, we went through so much as a family – I, that was just, we, it was so unneeded. I needed a, your friendship. Right, right. No, I, I, I went through the same stuff, Annie, I, I, and I feel the same way. Just, I needed people to just leave me alone. And, and actually, the people that didn't, the people that poked at me and, and you know, said really insensitive things are the people that I've really pushed away. Well, they're, right? I, I'm like, I, okay. I'll be honest, I don't feel the same about them either. And I don't yep. know that I could ever even want them in my life again. Yep. I, I'm not exactly. trying to seek vengeance, right. but I don't, I'll never see them the same again. And I'll never really want them around me again. Right. Because you weren't there at, at really the deepest, darkest, most yeah. awful chaos and despair that I was going through. How could you uh, you know, I just, I can't. You weren't only not there, you made it worse. Right, right. And I don't wish ill will, but right. I can't go there. No, right. So yeah, yep. be aware of that. Yep. Be extra sensitive For and others. aware of that. Yeah. Yep. I agree. So that's what I have for that. Do you, I don't know if you have anything else. When people become aware, can they get involved or? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you can get involved. That's for sure. I mean, there's a lot to do, yeah. right? I think one of the best things that, that people that are not in the midst of this or are kind of on the outskirts, one of the best things you can do is just get educated. Yeah. Become informed. Yeah. Become you in- don't know what you don't know. And you know what else? I also think don't have an opinion. Yeah. Right. Don't have an opinion. Or if you do have an opinion, just keep it to yourself and continue to get educated because your opinion might change. Right. Right. There's no reason why everybody's got to have an opinion. No, you know, that's one thing I just said recently that when my son had had a relapse early on, um, because somebody had emailed me that her son had relapsed and they were floored. And I remember saying, oh, that hurts so bad. It almost hurts more than when you first find out because the first time or the first couple times that they go into treatment and recovery, you think, okay, now this is over, this terrible terror and pain and all of this. Okay, now we have hope that it's over. And then when relapse comes, I think it hurts worse. It shatters you more until... But I said, but here's the good thing. What it, teach, what it taught me is that I don't know everything. I, there's so much I don't know about addiction and dependency and SUD. And it taught, ta- has taught my son when that's happened that every time he goes back, it's more miserable and it's more miserable quicker. So we've you know, benefited from it. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people go through that. I, I see that over and over again. I see a lot of people think, oh, he's going off to treatment, you know. Uh, four weeks of treatment, he's there for 30 days and, you know, he's going to get out and he's all cured. I did not have that. I think because my son suffered with the mental right. illness, I knew, oh boy, we are in for a long haul. And I, it just, it was, I was realizing these things when, when he first overdosed. I can remember sitting in the hospital going, 
oh man, this is going to be long, yep. you know, which is probably why I did the whole isolation thing for, and was stuck in it for like six months because it was, it was just kind of in my face. And I also, I knew after he went to treatment that first time, I knew that there was a high likelihood that he was probably going to relapse. So it was not surprising that, to me that that first relapse, what was surprising, and there were still some naive things that I thought, like when he first overdosed and I found out that he was using heroin, he was snorting it. And I thought to myself, well, he was snorting it. He's probably not addicted, Yeah, (laughs) you know, which is like, oh my God. You don't know what you don't know. (laughs) Boy, boy, was I wrong. But then when he relapsed that first time, that's when he started shooting up. His roommate shot him up. And yeah, and that was, oh man, not only did he relapse, but we've gotten deeper. Right. It gets worse every time. Right. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. For me, I, I knew it might come. And so, and, and it was horrible. I mean, you know, it was probably as horrible as it is, but I wasn't surprised. I wasn't. When it took you to a whole new level of awareness because you, I I keep figuring out, I'm never going to know everything about this. I'm it's, I'm just like, it's cunning, baffling and progressive. I have to be progressive in what I learn and stay aware of because I'm in recovery too. Plus I don't, nobody gets this thing all figured out. Right. And it did bring me to actually a lower, a deeper sadness. It it did. It brought me to that because it's like, oh, you know, it was like, oh, okay, I'm going to, I am, it's confirming what I suspected. And I was afraid to get happy. Right. Oh, yeah. Because, oh, if I get happy, the shoe will drop. The other shoe right, comes. Then right. it's gonna ha- you know, it's going to be worse. Uh, so I kind of stayed low there for a while. And, and, you know, I was doing my journey and I was doing what I had to do in order to recover. But yeah, that's why you got to keep it on the 24 hour plan. And I love uh, some of these phrases are familiar to everybody, but they were new for me. A counselor had told me, I was like, how am I going to do this for the next five, 10, 20 years? And she said, yeah. well, you don't have to. How about and I said, do I don't. And she said, you ha- yeah, she said, you have to do it today. Just yeah, like your son doesn't it. have to stay sober for 10 years. He has to stay sober for today. And that right. was such relief. And that's when I really pulled it in close and thought, okay, we're going to live on this 24 hour plan. And then I put steps in place every day of staying mindful and aware, taking walks and noticing things so that I could keep myself in the moment because I can only do it today. Right. Yeah. So that's all I got. You don't know what you don't know. Hopefully now you know a whole lot more. And if you don't need the information right now, please be compassionate with those who do. And if you do around the corner, hopefully you will have a plan in place or knowledge in place and steps to take because we've made you a little bit more aware. Right. And spread the word. That's right. Thanks so much. Next time we will see you again on Coming Up for Air. Sounds good. Bye, Annie. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online, or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, .net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey. Thank you.